Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We are everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and me, I'm Jer Swigert. And as always, we're going to ease our way into this conversation with one of Haley's questions of the week. All right, and here we are with our question of the week. John and Jer, do you remember what first big purchase you made with your own money? Jer, I feel like you're chomping at the bit. I think you should oh. <laughs> It's going to be good. 1987 <laughs> Topps baseball card full set. Ooh. Topps? Yeah, Topps was the brand. Oh, okay. Uh, Topps is also the brand that would that would give you the um, the terrible piece of chewing gum yeah. in the individually wrapped <laughs> like chewing on baseball cards. sugared stone. But I I mean we're talking 87, I mean the Maguire card, the Ricky Henderson. Yeah, it's a good I year. Mean, I was so excited and it came in the long thin box. Yep. I did I didn't open it for a year cuz I just figured it would it would appreciate in value. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it. how old were how old were you? Uh I was probably 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 7 or 8. That's pretty impressive delayed gratification there to well, not you know, open yeah. it for a well, year as an eight-year-old. Not bad. But then I probably, and then I, I worked through it and just bent all the edges in the corners so it's worthless now. <laughs> so you don't have them anymore? They're not in the, in the shed somewhere? They're in the yeah. attic. You bet. Yeah, they are. Nice. See, I, my dad, we all have these stories, right? Your dad gets rid of the cards and they're worth a bazillion dollars. So I still literally have them. Jan can't stand me that I have two massive bins. Of you hold on to those things because they're going to be valuable one day. Hey, one of these days. <laughs> um, That's what I thought about Beanie Babies. Mm, not uh, so much. Mm, that's rough for Brad. What about you, John? Uh, for me, it was the original Nintendo. Wow, that's a high ticket item. Yes. Here's how it went. I have two older sisters. I am the youngest of three. And we made a trifecta pact that if we approached the parentals and said, hey, we are going to combine our finances to get the Nintendo. <laughs> Maybe they'll say yes. So we yeah. went to them. And I remember very distinctly going to my folks with my sisters and us saying, if you'll let us use our money to buy this, we will never ask for anything again in our lives. <laughs> That's a direct quote. And we got it. And it was it was a dream. I did ask for other things after that, though. So true confession, mom and dad, I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. My first purchase was, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably eight or nine, um, was an American Girl doll. Um, mm -hmm. They were very, I think they probably are still like very expensive. They're like, at the time, I think they were like $85, $90 for a doll. So I had to save up a really long time. Man, that's like $350 in today's currency. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they they didn't have – so American Girl dolls, like, you know, are different little American girls throughout history. And I wanted, like, the one that was closest to me, but they didn't have any Asians. So I got Josefina, who was Mexican-American. Oh there you go. it was the closest to looking like me, like a mm. little bit darker skin and brown hair. Mm. So mm. me and Josefina, we really, <laughs> we really tackled Called the it up together. Mm. Uh, yep. On behalf of the uh, 
the U.S. majority. I apologize that you were forced into that situation. <laughs> and the doll making industry. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that it might have an Asian one now, but you know, back then, I would hope not. Not so much. But I mean, I loved the American Girls, and I still think they teach very valuable American history lessons to our young, our young impressionable minds. Uh, we have an incredible guest today, Matt Willingham, who's a dear friend um, of all three of ours. Um, and he has some incredible words to share about what is everyday peacemaking, uh, the less glamorous aspects of it, and how do we tackle issues of belonging in our lives. Matt Willingham. It's so good. I can actually see your face right now, but for our listeners, um, they'll just get to hear your wonderful voice. It's so nice to have you here with us today. Do you mind just introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, my name's Matt, and I currently live in San Diego, California, uh, with my wife and three kids, and I work in uh, humanitarian photography, marketing, storytelling kind of field. I never, I, I kind of describe my work differently every time because I, you know, you want to mix it up. Depending on how but, you feel or depending yeah, on who you're talking yeah. to. <laughs> All the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Got one of those feeler jobs and I love it. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks again for being willing to hop on this podcast with us. Um, we are, we're, the goal is simply to talk to everyday people that are peacemaking in their context. And so I'd love to hear um, a little bit more from you when we when you hear everyday peacemaking and I know there's a million stories you could probably share but maybe what does that jar in you at least in this moment in this snapshot of time I think uh, in me it, it it definitely makes me think about the quiet like the stuff that people aren't going to see the stuff that's not going to get shared I mean so much of my work is about sharing good things being done and that's great Right. But it has this kind of ugly underbelly of really, at times, we, we don't know people's motivations, but I do know mine. And I know that sometimes mine can be pretty ego driven, like excessively ego driven. And so one of the things that I love about the everyday peacemaking movement and a lot of what you guys teach is it's about the quiet. It's about the invisible. It's about the little moments, the little acts, you know, choosing to inconvenience yourself, choosing to go out of your way and actually make real plans to be a peacemaker without a lot of the show all the time. And uh, I really appreciate that and admire that. And I, that's something that over the last couple of years, I've been just trying to grow in and learn more about because I think that's the, that's it, right? I mean, when it's every day, it's going to be common. It's not necessarily flashy. It's not necessarily Instagram worthy. And that's good because that means it's become such a norm normative thing for you that you don't even necessarily think of it as like, something you've got to share. I mean, of course, there will be moments that you want to share, but that peacemaking for you becomes such a regular daily rhythm of life that you don't really feel the need to broadcast it all the time. It's just a part of life. It's it's inhale, exhale, you know? Mm, I love it. I love that so much. And you also just, you, you know, you introduce yourself as being in San Diego, but that's a relatively new, new place for you. I'm curious if you could share a little bit about, you know, where you lived before, what that transition and has been like moving back and and how that's impacted your peacemaking practice. You know, uh, I I fell in love with a girl in college and she told me she wanted to move to Thailand and I didn't know where that was, but I knew I wanted to be where <laughs> she was. 
And so for the first time in my life, I really moved abroad and uh, it was wild and scary and kind of crazy. And we nearly broke up and then we got back together and then we got married and it was this kind of whole roller coaster. But then eventually we're sitting there in Bangkok, Thailand going, okay, so why are we here again? And what are we going to do with this time and our 20s? And she just always had such a passion for finding work that would be in solidarity that would be more alongside rather than kind of here, I'm going to help you poor person. And so I just kind of followed her into it. And she got really interested in this work. I I was also interested, but she was very passionate about this work that was happening in Iraq at the time, Uh, or an organization called Preemptive Love Coalition was getting started. And so we moved over and kind of jumped into peacemaking in Iraq during the Iraq war, which The context was really jarring and we didn't have any clue what peacemaking meant. And so it was kind of just trying to take baby steps, but in a situation where other people were like hardened marathon runners, you know. Um, But one of the things that I kind of noticed about that is that I, I jumped into it in an Iraqi context where I was the foreigner and I could often kind of step back and recuse myself or remove myself. A lot of it because of my privilege, but a lot of it just from being a foreigner too, like I could go, well, you know, there was a flare up in this city between Sunnis and Shias, and that's terrible, and we're going to try to help. But there was always this sense of it's not my mess. You know what I mean? Even though it is, I know on some level I am a contributor as a U.S. American to what has happened in Iraq. But it was always, I could kind of back up a little bit. And so I absolutely validate the important peacemaking work that's being done in conflict zones like that. And I'm honored to have been a part of it. But Maybe this won't be surprising to many in this community, but at least for me, it was surprising to move back to the U.S., try to do a lot of the same stuff, and actually it was way harder, especially relationally. The stuff that we were doing over there, we were very celebrated for. Yeah, those Sunnis and Shias, all those Muslims and Christians, yeah, y'all got to help them out. And then you come over here and you start saying basically the same stuff about very, very similar issues. I mean, of course, there are differences, but... um, yeah, you get a very different reaction. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about that on the phone recently, but it has been an interesting transition um, to try to understand what does it look like to be a peacemaker at home? And it turns out it's a lot harder in a lot of ways. What has been the most difficult? Risking belonging. Ah, risking belonging. Yeah. yeah. How have you seen that manifest itself? Well, I mean, often the people who were cheering us on when we were over there, um, we're friends and family and, you know, pastors and mentors. And when we start applying some of these same things, I see very, very, very strong similarities between Iraq and the U.S. in terms of conflict and disagreement and differences and diversity and culture and history. So when I start saying some of these things, I get I get met with some pretty strong pushback. And sometimes there are even family, I'm sad to say, who have kind of had to step back and sort of I wouldn't say cut me off, but definitely hold me at arm's arm's length. Mm. And it is confusing at times because they were very, very uh, into the stuff in Iraq and not so much when it comes to, for example, racial injustice in the United States and, and the systemic legacy therein. So that's kind of scary, right? When do you speak? When do you risk offending? When is it my ego charging forward as opposed to sort of working out salvation with fear and trembling? so to speak. You know what I mean? Like, it's really hard. A lot of it gets down to motivations. But I I do think I've often erred on the side of, well, we're over there in the Middle East, and there's enough to deal with over there. 
And I think what I was, I think maybe there's some validity there, but not really. I think mostly it was just avoidance. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to confront the very real fact that my family owned slaves and we absolutely benefited um, from systems. And I am absolutely every single day still benefiting. And so trying to confront some of that, how do you do that in the context of family and friends who often they don't want to go there? And again, I keep coming back to this, but you, I mean, you guys have been really helpful in this because I see you as a community who, while very diverse in thinking, background, so many ways, I mean, so many ways, there is that consistency of, of acknowledging that sometimes it's right to speak and sometimes speaking will mean risking and that's worth it. It's, it's worth it. And I, I don't always know how that looks because it's probably different for every person, every circumstance, but for me, it's really come down to I need to say things um, and not always just sit back and kind of let the conversation ride out how I know it's going to ride out, mm-hmm. um, but choose to say, look, I, I respectfully disagree. I just don't think that's the most loving way to talk about this issue. I don't think that that's the, I think there's a lot of context we're missing. So trying to kindly speak up, but also speaking up with some nerves, like kind of scared, right? Because I know it could go really badly and it mm-hmm. and it often has, and especially you know, in the last few months and the uprising we're seeing and everything mm-hmm. post George Floyd's murder, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people are thinking through this. Yeah. Well, I think that that fear of losing belonging, I imagine, is a place of deep resonance or, or also a place of fear for a lot of people listening. And I'm what when did you realize that saying these same things that you were celebrated for saying in the Middle East, but now saying in the context of U.S. culture and U.S. behavior was going to um, was going to compromise maybe your your sense of belonging. When did you realize that and how did you decide to move in like through that and into that and into the place you are now? Yeah, well, I definitely got a taste of it when we were in Iraq. I, I mean, we we specifically went over to love. Well, that's not specific. That's very general. But generally speaking, we went <laughs> yeah. over to to try to love. And the more that we worked at loving, the more that we realized there's a way that some of our friends and family in the U.S. want us to love Iraqis. And then there's how Iraqis mm. want to be loved. And those can be very divergent, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're spending time with Iraqis who are telling you about U.S.'s illegal use of chemical weaponry against their population that's resulted mm-hmm. in all these birth defects and malformities and prenatal deaths. And and so I start asking some of my American friends, did you know this? And the, no, don't go there. We don't go there. We don't question those kinds of things. So there were mo- there were definitely moments or times where it came up, but not like moving back. I would say, I mean, really, anytime we started talking, I, I started talking about Black Lives Matter, even in a really broad kind of context, it's just buttons and lights. And I mean, people just teeth were on edge. People were not happy. And, and what, like, yeah, what was that process like saying, okay, I'm going to make people angry. I'm going to potentially isolate myself from these, you know, sacred, deep relationships or family ships or friendships. Why was it that you were like, but I still have to say something? Uh, Because I'd spent so much time not doing it and it didn't get me anywhere. It didn't necessarily help. It didn't necessarily create more belonging among those friends and family to not do it. Um, And what I started to to realize, or at least I I think I realized, is that 
you know, when you, when you touch a bruise, it hurts. When you touch a nerve, it hurts. When you, when you touch a wound, when you touch something that's rotting, um, or decaying, you know, in your own body or whatever, it hurts. And so I started to see it more as this is not some kind of real rule as much as this is a pain point and a point of insecurity for a lot of people, myself included. And it's confusing, right? Because belonging as kids and transformation always went hand in hand. My kids are, my kids are growing right now. They're growing in the context of belonging. But what happens when your growth and your belonging do this? That's just really hard. But one of the things people keep telling me over and over again is, look, that's also just a part of maturity. And more beautifully, and I think even more sacred than that, is it's an opportunity to live in a little bit of solidarity with people who experience non-belonging or sort of however, whatever the right word is, don't get belonging mm-hmm. all the time. And so instead, now beginning, it's almost like in the civil rights movement where actually before getting arrested was really terrible. And the last thing you wanted, the civil rights movement flipped the script and now said, you got arrested, you're a baller. And it's, it feels almost like that to be a little castigated while still maintaining a posture of love. Um, now I almost see it as an honor, like that I got to be pushed out a little bit of the sort of dominant culture situation I was in. Obviously, I'm still in it. Obviously, I'm not experiencing what many, many people in the world are experiencing, but it's a tiny little taste, and that's an opportunity for empathy. Mm. And so trying to flip the script in my own mind in terms of belonging is not being ultimate. Actually, transformation and growth and solidarity and love and all these things are much more important. Yeah. So when you thought you were moving or losing belonging, belonging actually then evolved. Yeah. And then ultimately hoping that over time it would create a new kind of belonging. And that's what you guys, that's one of the things that you guys consistently offer to so many people is a, is a new belonging that, that ultimately is about growth and is about showing solidarity and taking those risks. And I, I'm grateful for that. Well, Matt, we're super grateful for you and only because of presence and people like you, do we even have, have a community to offer belonging to. So really grateful for the presence that you're holding in this space and in the world. So thanks for being with us today. Love you guys. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Well, that was uh, some kind of gift to hear from someone who uh, has lived the peacemaking way of life in such different contexts, right? I mean, I, I can't help but reflect on how many times I understood peacemaking before I really wrestled with its implications as something that sat out in like conflict zones on the other side of the world. Um, but that really became tangible and shaped my way of life and became, as we often say, like a discipleship journey for us as followers of Jesus when it started showing up on our streets. So to have someone like him go from Middle East, where uh, it's, it's, it's viewed as, um, that's where peacemaking belongs rather than just right here at home. And, and for me, what, what spoke most loudly uh, is, is the cost of living the everyday life of peace on your own streets when it begins to bump up against belonging. I mean, his words on belonging are at the epicenter of our identities. And so, you know, especially for us as, as a peacemaking training organization, we, we, we work so hard to talk about this is a practiced way of life, but the practice only makes sense in the context of understanding our identity. And, you know, his words about the high cost of being kind but courageous is the way he put it with his family, especially in close friends, resonates deeply. Uh, with my own experience, this deep desire to live into a better way 
um, and a conviction that requires you do so, but also how disruptive that is when it begins to poke on your identity and belonging because those closest to you aren't necessarily endorsing it because it's getting too close to home. And so I just think there's there's deep, deep layers for us to peel back in, in what we heard from Matt. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the we, we do a training segment in our uh, in our immersion trips around on that very topic, right? Because there's because it's so critical. Because we watch people, we watch people begin to wake up to this restorative theology and begin to embrace the practices of everyday peacemaking, and they're, they're finding a faith that is finally worth their lives. And then they return into the spaces that shape where their identity was shaped, and they begin to experience that rejection, and that becomes. Uh, it becomes too heavy a burden to bear to like consider that they'd be breaking rank with their family in order to follow the Jesus that um, that I think we see in in the scriptures. And so, like we always point to that moment when Jesus returns to to Nazareth after the baptism, after he he re- re- like receives the beauty of his belovedness, his identity as beloved. He goes back to the place where his identity was shaped, and and remember he opens the Isaiah scroll. Isaiah 61 claims messianic prophecy and the community is like, yes, they're so excited. And then he says, oh, and by the way, the the reach of God's restorative wingspan goes far beyond this bloodline. Then they wanted to kill him. (laughs) You know, so if we as everyday peacemakers, if we're beginning to feel the heat from those who helped shape our identity because we are choosing to live out this restorative theology, uh, I think we might be in good company. (laughs) <laughs> you know, perhaps when those who have shaped our theology, our identity begin scratching their heads, wondering why we're doing what we're doing, it could be that we're exactly where we're supposed to be doing exactly what we've been called to do. Yeah, I kept I kept thinking about uh, two of our peacemaking practices, see and immerse and how in interconnected they are, you know, him talking about what moving to. Iraq and and what they thought would be loving on people there is different than what they learned once they actually immersed and learned how to see. And then coming back to the U.S., it's like that muscle was built in them and, and they immersed back into this reality, were able to see more clearly and therefore be able to um, to speak what they see as as the peacemaking priorities right now in the U.S., but it's amazing how people walk through life and walk through the world without ever actually immersing into their space. And I think that's something, I don't know how how really to describe it, but it's it's like this, we we almost sleepwalk through, through life. And then when Matt, like he referenced the touching of like a bruise or a wound. So then if you're kind of sleepwalking through life and someone, you know, pokes out a wound, you, you don't even know that you even have that wound. Cause you're only just like halfway <laughs> moving through this world. And so I think it, it, it just, it, it was evoking like a deep sadness in me listening to him reflect on some of the conversations he's had since coming home with just that realization of, oh man, people, yeah, it, it's hot. like seeing, really seeing is hard work. And I don't know what percentage of people, I don't have stats, you know, stats or statistics on it, but 
it feels like so few people actually see what is really happening around them. They just see what they want to see or what makes Mm -hmm. them feel most comfortable. Yeah. So I wonder if we can get hyper practical here because, because we just raised up, I think two really important pieces of, of Matt's contribution. How, how do we navigate the trickiness of transformation when it means that we're breaking rank with those who have shaped our identity and how do we break out of sleepwalking, especially in the in a dominant culture sense, it, those of us who benefit from that, I think it lulls us into the sleepwalk. How practically, how do we, um, how do we become people who see more clearly? Hmm. Yeah, that's what was, was speaking loud, uh, to me too is is he mentioned the importance of like that breaking out of the sleepwalk requires we say things um with courage but to also interrogate where it's coming from we talked about motivation and it, what would it look like for us collectively before we have that mic drop tweet or social media post to to take an inventory of where where's my ego wrapped into this is this a armchair activist move as we often say where we can say the right thing on facebook but really it's just about it's about building our own platform or it's about making a point or seeking to win rather than to heal. So I feel like that's a really, really critical point of, of the denumbing has to come in a context of understanding who you're speaking to and, and grounded in that identity, that it, it is really a intention towards healing. Uh, the other piece is, you know, Jerry, you talked about Jesus, you know, that, that story leads with Jesus nearly being killed by that community. And imagine how disorienting, how easy it would have been for Jesus to be like, this isn't worth it. I'm done. Like, I'll, I'll just appease the status quo because I could lose my life. And if we're saying yes to that new belonging that Matt talked about, it could cost us a lot. And who is the community where we feel safe with, where we feel that solidarity, where we're being reminded of our identity where we can feel like we can let down our guard. And so for those of us listening, who is that trusted community? It could just be one person. It could be a, a cadre of folks you're walking with. It could be this everyday peacemaking community that you're being invited into. We are on this journey together to support each other through that, uh, that, that very tumultuous journey towards the new belonging. That's good. I, I, I mean, I can think of um, multiple, multiple stories within the community that shape my identity um, that have been really, really hard. And, um, and I, I, I want to double down on what you just said, John. Like for me, I feel like I have relatively tough skin, but you get, you get to a place at some point where it's like, man, not only does it feel lonely, I just like... I can't metabolize this anymore. I, I'm at a break point and I'm either gonna I'm either gonna break rank with this message or I'm gonna break rank with this community. And I'm not sure that breaking rank, uh, walking away from either is the right scenario, you know? And so it is, it's like, who, is, who am I shoulder to shoulder with that I can lament, that I can share? Like, here's the email that I just received from someone who cherishes me and who I love uh, and it's crushing me and... Uh, it's also an indication that maybe something right is happening in them, in us, in me, you know? Um, and so to be able to have a dialogue partner who can help me metabolize what feels like vitriol and the resistance, that's helping me actually mature. It's not just thickening my skin. You know, he said the trans, when transformation collides with your belonging and your sense of former sense of identity, 
it's either going to cause us to retreat or it's going to cause us to grow and mature. And I, I have to have people shoulder to shoulder with me that I know are in the journey that I can share and be vulnerable in that way. And then they can inspire me and, and encourage me forward. Yeah, it does seem it, it, it was sweet to hear him reflect on the evo on the evolution of belonging in his life. And that could be a really important thing for each of us to think about is as we fear losing belonging, maybe our belonging is just evolving into something new and we, we don't know what it is yet, but we have to trust that as we move and move in faithfulness, that belonging is big enough for where we are moving as well as where we have been. Matt, thank you so much for showing us that belonging can be redefined. And that the more we grow and are formed as peacemakers, our belonging and community can grow and expand with us. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go and participate in it and truly know that you are not alone. 